Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, I have the honor and privilege to be joined by Charles E. Scott, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy Emeritus and Research Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Charles was also Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Philosophy at Penn State University. He is the author of several books of philosophy, including Beyond Philosophy, Nietzsche, Foucault, Anzaldúa, which he co-authored with his wife, Nancy Tuana, in 2020, and his latest work, Telling Silence, published by State University of New York Press and available in November of 2023. Charles also holds the distinction of being one of my very first philosophy teachers. Mm -hmm. We crossed paths during my undergraduate education at Penn State University 25 years ago and in an impressionable seminar on Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, which forced me to set a meandering course for a life and thought. Charles, I'm very happy that you took the time with me on this lovely autumn day. Good to be here. So I want to talk about your new book, Telling Silence. One of the things that you say in the book is that in your work throughout your life, silence is something that's always cropped up in the work, but not until now have you thematized it as a particular book. Why do you think silence comes up so often in your work, and why did you make the choice to make that the theme of Telling Silence? Uh, let me say that the title, Telling Silence, telling is used in the sense of revealing. So when Craig walked in the room and smiled at that woman, it was a very telling smile. Uh, telling silence means letting silence show itself. And then there's a subtitle, uh, Thresholds to Nowhere in ordinary experience. The interest, which I realized uh, only relatively recently, in silence uh, has to do with the absence of continuity unless it is forced in most of human experience. That words and noise can in fact block uh, the perception of things happening. So when I got to thinking about it, I went back and reread passages on silence and the other books, and I was not satisfied. There was something missing. And so I began to think about this book um, in terms of what is it that is missing? As I say in the introduction, I became tantalized uh, by the utter difference of silence, which can accompany noise. It is not simply the absence of noise. It's that silence that sometimes you overhear, and sometimes it's a little weird. If it's dark and misty and so forth, it can be weird, but in any case, and what it opened up for me is that if I am able to let silence silence itself in my awareness, the awareness is not rational, it is not transitive or intransitive, it's of a different, and I can't say order, it is without order. Now, if I say, 
Craig is very silent today. That's a silence, a type of silence, and it has boundaries. Silence, silencing is unbounded. It's not a thing. And it's in our ordinary experience. Yeah, thank you, Charles. I remember when we reunited about a year ago, I had talked about moving out to the woods away from the city. And one of the expectations, perhaps the romantic expectations that I had, that I was moving to a place of repose that would be silent. But one of the things that I noticed is the incredible cacophony that you experience season after season living here, maybe with the exception of winter, but of course that has its own special cacophony as well. And we had talked about this idea that within solitude, often there's a plentitude. It feels very full sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting note in this book that, you know, somebody living in the city, for example, could experience a a rupture of silence amidst the noise. Um, How does that occur for you? What are some images that you have of, of, of silence rupturing the noise? I would be more comfortable with happens with the noise rather than rupture. Mm-hmm. I don't think silence ruptures anything. I don't think it does a thing. I don't think silence comes. I don't think silence goes. Uh, the issue is, <clears throat> am I alert, aware, in ways that allows the self, and now I can't say showing, can I, the silencing, Can I be aware in the silencing, even while Craig talks or the band plays? And what I found out is that uh, silence is pervasive, which is to say nothing is ultimate. Now, this concept of silent silencing this is a usage of what is called the middle voice. And when we talked about your attempt at writing this book, uh, you mentioned to me that you were going to take a poetic approach. Could you talk a little bit about, like, what is the middle voice and why do you privilege this kind of language? Yep. Uh, Well, the middle voice comes from a long time ago, particularly in the East. Uh, And it's a voice, not an active voice not a passive voice, it's the middle voice. The voice in its own intransitive mode is the enactment of the subject so that the subject need not be said. I can say, for example, in Sanskrit, and I don't know Sanskrit, in Sanskrit, it's, there is one word, let's call it santi. And that means the cook cooks the cook's what meal. One word. So that there is no activity that objectifies. There is no object in that voice. So the middle voice is the enactment the happening that the enactment is neither objective nor passive. It's a different voice. And it's very difficult to focus on the different voice. Now, 
There are certain things in English that can be used, for example, when becoming happens. You could say, middle voice, becoming comes becoming. I might say, for example, also, if, if I were to experience it, love loves loving. Or loving loves love. So that the awareness is not of something called love or something, something called becoming. What is there is the happening and simply that. To, to be aware in that way, I have to be in the enactment. And that I that's in the enactment is not an active subject. Now, what happens when I become accustomed to not being an active agent at all? The book is written in fragments because I did not want to suggest indirectly that the book is tied together by a, an active idea or theme. It's not. Uh, and so there is a kind of reverberation of chaos. That's to say, absence of order or unorder, to play on a word of Foucault's. And that happening brings me into a region, I guess it's a region, I might say, into an area that would have been totally foreign to me a few years ago. And in that totally foreign, I lived in a world of objects and subjects. And it puts a lot of weight on being the subject, you know. And you might take, if some of you have read Emmanuel uh, uh, Levinas, for example, um, for him, the subject is active, same is true with Jean-Paul Sartre, you get two very different people. The claim is that anytime I recognize you, I touch you, I feel affection for you, I negate your existence because mm -hmm. what I am facing and dealing with is my image of you, always, because you're an object. In the middle voice, that's not so. I see. There's, there's something there which echoes uh, the way in which Nietzsche kind of heals the split between the doer and the doing, in a sense. It, it uplifts a kind of eventfulness right. of silence silencing and we've talked a little bit about how this manifests as an ethic but it also is a poetics or even an aesthetics and on the car ride over here we talked about the poem that you've included in the text uh, from wallace stevens uh, which i learned for the first time was the last poem that he had written in his life and you use this poem of an example of silence silencing. Could you tell us what is that poem and, and talk about why you picked it as an example in your book? Let me first say a few words about poietic, which is the way I name. Poiesis, poiesis in Greek, means to bring something 
into existence, which did not previously exist and which will continue for time to exist. So poiesis is basically uh, founded in creating or inventing. So it's a, it's a creative situation and not one that is defined by rational logic. Rational logic carries one language to a certain point, and then there are rules and laws. In the poetic, the indirect communication indicating what cannot be said directly with no religious connotations at all. This is not a, um, a, a form of, of Buddhist thought. I have I bear no grudge against Buddhist thought, but it's just not that. And a lot of people jump on that at mm-hmm. first. So the poiesis uh, doesn't refer strictly to poetry. It does, the word poetry does emphasize a certain creativity mm-hmm. that's desirable. And when that works with a good poet, you've got to be inside that poem mm-hmm. to really hear it because it's its own event. And that in itself is a considerable enactment, mm-hmm. I guess I would say. So uh, Wallace Stevens is called the poem at the end of the mind. And it creates a situation. This is a very short poem in which there is a poem at the end of the mind. Now, in a certain sense, he means that literally. It's an image. And imagination is the, the very <laughs> boiling pot uh, for uh, uh, Wallace Stevens' poems. When I get inside that poem, anything that I could do or say to make sense doesn't make sense in that poem. There is no sense in that poem, no direct sense. But the imagery, the force, the power of the life of that imaginative moment. What happens with me is it takes away my thinking. Philosopher Scott here, and it takes away my thinking. And the bird is singing. And he describes it as a bird with its fire-fingered feathers hanging down. So it is a bird that can rise up out of its ashes and become the bird. It, It is something that creates and engenders a creation from something as different as ashes and a beautiful bird and the palm and the bird and the bird is singing he thinks it's singing he is singing the bird isn't he don't I hear the singing and in in that environment just like if you're in the environment for example let's say of a suffering child to take something opposite and you feel it and you don't both, both at the same time. That poem, as I read it at the end of the introduction, takes me to the very edge of, of 
any imagery whatsoever. And being there on the edge and not hearing the song and not being sure about the poem and yet being in the power of these two images. And so I, I stop and I say, am I thinking, how can I tell you what I want to say in the rest of the book? So I understand the book in its poiesis to be one that is attempting to communicate what cannot be said directly by stories and imageries and, for example, with Nietzsche, to the understanding of what a free spirit really is. Or with um, Foucault, this mostly comes out of Madness and Civilization, uh, well, History of Madness book, uh, Unreason, the absence of reason that gave birth, poiesis, that gave birth to all kinds of different ways of thinking from the rationalism that dominated the 17th and 18th centuries. Since we're talking about Foucault, maybe we could elaborate upon that a little bit. Um, there's this distinction between rational and irrational, but there's this third term, unreason. Uh, recently, I had witnessed a debate online with respect to how it, Derrida challenges. He challenges his formulation of rationality and irrationality because Derrida wants to say that even within rationality, there is a kind of irrationality. Therefore, there is not a total exclusion Right. And this is meant to undermine Foucault's project in some way. But with this introduction of this concept of unreason or unlaw, what do those terms do that unsettle this binary between rational and irrational for you? Yeah. And unorder. Unorder. Yeah. Unreason in both French and uh, English vocabulary is not a word. And it is unordered. And in the midst of order, there is so much unorder, and they blend together. Now, one image in the history of madness, which is the history of the founding of mental uh, institutions, the most rational people in these particularly cities and, and larger towns began to form houses, they were called, where they would put sick people and having nothing else to do with them, they started also putting in people who had serious mental problems, including the radically insane. Now look at the image. The most rational thing they could do was to build an institution that contained and attempted to stymie absence of reason. And in that day and time, to be a thief or to owe a whole lot of money or anything, those would be called, those would be thought to be irrational. Furthermore, they had dreams, people did. And those dreams with Sukhubi, uh, for example, night visits by witches who would have radical sex with the man and the man would wake up exhausted and scared half to death or a man a, a ghost 
would come in and also do the same thing with women, these repressed and so forth women. So here we have in this rationally structured town and with people who live within the boundaries of rational good sense and are obedient, are invaded by the absence of reason entirely. And then he goes on to show um, how in the lepers were ostracized uh, and the rituals they had for them. Uh, and in that case, you had the, it's not irrationality, but you had an unhealable sickness. And they too began, began to get leprosoria. Try to contain them, try to contain them. And unreason opened all kinds of doors. Can you imagine women being given the right to be educated, to learn how to read? So you have a lineage, genealogy for, on the one hand, you've got Foucault, you've got Nietzsche, and you have a group of women rebels that began the early foundation of feminism. You have all of these apertures violating rational good sense and in the absence of rational good sense. And it's so different, it's not the opposite. It's utterly different, it's unreason. Maybe we can make a connection now because it seems that within this experience of silence silencing, this embodiment of a, of a middle voice or in this poetic creative act. Mm-hmm. And then over here we have this discussion of Foucault and the many sort of political problems that come with it. How do we connect, for example, Foucault's work with the way that you're articulating silent silencing as an ethics? For example, to deal with the kinds of social exclusion that that rationality does produce. Um, you know, earlier when we were coming up here, we talked about the notion of silent silencing, at least in the case of Wallace Stevens' poem, as having this sort of extra political dimension or being beyond politics or in a, a liminal space where the politics cannot enter. Is there some sort of connection that we can make to practical action in the world with this idea of silent silencing? No. <laughs> <laughs> but what it can do is impact people's consciousness and alertness. And in that transformation by what doesn't have a form, that turning will also shift sensibilities. But if you want to predict what should be done, da-da-da-da-da, All you're doing is creating another morality. The point is, life, as I see it in the impact of silencing, nothing is changeless. And nothing lasts long, including the most sacred truths. So how do you live with that? And the word that I would use, one word, is determined. One is determined to find what works best, and you could call that a kind of pragmatism, but 
what makes most sense at the time. And die for it if necessary. But don't die for it because it's eternal. The image of eternality, which is the best we've got, doesn't last long. Let's talk about Nietzsche a little bit more. It was interesting to see Nietzsche come in as a figure in the book, a figure of silent silencing, given that Nietzsche is often associated with being this sort of bombastic figure. Yes. And it's interesting because you use this concept of the free spirit, Nietzsche's own attempt at unriddling. But yet at the same yes. at the same time, there's this this idea where there are free spirits who keep the riddles, yes. preserve the riddles. Yes. What's happening? It almost seems contradictory. Well, what do you mean by this? (laughs) (laughs) The riddlers, the one who speak in riddles, are, I think, Nietzsche's favorite folks, including himself, because they are riddles. That's to say, what they do and think and feel, particularly feel, is not under the jurisdiction of any completing order. Or to put it in other language for a moment, the Riddlers are harmonious with the absence of good sense that pervades the world. So, There is nothing complete in their lives. And that's just fine. What within your own work stands out perhaps as the most profound example of silence? Something maybe that that lingers around you, you know, quasi-axiomatically, that, or that comes back as a kind of refrain, or something that allows you to go to this precipice where, where meaning and politics and everything sort of comes to an end or fizzles out. Uh, what, what seems to you most profound? Well, I'll tell you a true story. Okay. So uh, my wife and I uh, went to... Germany in 1957 on Fulbright and went over on a boat. And on the boat, we met a conductor with his wife, who is a pianist. And he was coming to work with conducting in Berlin, School of Music there. And um, he became a considerable success. And we, we formed a good friendship and visited. We were in southern Germany and Tübingen, and he was in Berlin. But we met now and then, and both of them were black. My wife was from Memphis and had never been touched by a black person who wasn't a servant or a working person. I was from Oklahoma, and it wasn't that kind of, it wasn't deep south, but um, the uh, town, colored town it was called, um, was made up originally of black slaves who had come with the Native Americans 
as the Native Americans slaves on the Trail of Tears. And they put them in um, two different areas around this town. Rewoka was the name of the town uh, because it was divided between the Seminoles and the Creek tribes. And in that area, if I, a Seminole, crossed the boundary, and there was an alley there, crossed the boundary into the Creek country, the Creeks could do whatever they wanted to me with impunity. Mm -hmm. I had no legal rights at all, and nor did a, a, uh, a Creek have any legal rights in Seminole territory. So they separated the slaves. <clears throat> that was my experience uh, of black people at that time. With Paul and Cornelia, we had two highly sophisticated black people. And not only did we shake hands and hug, we danced. And you know, I danced with Cornelia, my, my cheek against her cheek, my arm around her waist, her stomach touching, all of that. And we were such easy friends, and I often wondered how was it that my wife could make that adjustment, and how is it that I could make that adjustment in, in, in a way that I could never have engineered for myself. And I think it was the most silent part of our connection, which was skin touching skin. And an awareness of that intimacy, that closeness. What was not a rational or objective sense at all, but was a sense in the silence of the non-objective, non-subjective skin. At that touch, there's a blending, a touch. Uh, and the second one was also on that boat. It was a 12-day rambunctious ocean mm -hmm. <laughs> that we were in. And um, I was on the front of the boat alone uh, one night before going to bed. And we had this canopy of stars just beautiful stars, and this tiny little object that this tiny little thing, me, were on, being tossed and pitched and moved and everything. I was coming into a country where I was to speak German, and in an environment, a very strange environment for me. I was raised in the Southwest, Oklahoma and Texas, and all of these differences were congealed into a way that I experienced as an opening with no idea what was or could happen. Utter silence. 